You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Once again today, I pick up the very familiar passage of Scripture I began to look at last time, Psalm 23. Hardly a more familiar text anywhere in the Word of God. And as I said last week, so often we, we say these texts, we know them, but yet we look past them. And so I'm just asking that we pause at it and think of what we are saying and what we are affirming in the familiar words of the 23rd Psalm. We particularly looked at the first four verses, and there's a, a definite break in the psalm, and it is verses 5 and 6 that I would consider this morning, but I'll read the whole psalm. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the Word of God. Last time we emphasized how this psalm begins in its opening statement by presenting the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, as it is spelled out in Scripture, the Lord, the, the God Most High, who is Creator, is also my shepherd the highest person taking the lowliest kind of office. And for that reason, his people's needs are satisfied. He restores empty souls. He produces works in our lives that are in accordance with righteousness. Once he gives us that justifying righteousness that is his own, and he guards us from ever-present evil as a shepherd does, of course. Now today we want to look at these last two verses, 5 and 6 of Psalm 23, because here's a somewhat different picture. It harmonizes, of course, but it's a little bit of a different image. Turning from the idea of a shepherd to picture the great God of David and of Israel and our God as a gracious host. He prepares a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. Many people feel that this pulls us into an even greater sense of intimacy with God than verses 1 through 4. And maybe secretly we human beings feel also like it's a, a bit more, what do we say, honoring to us to be talked about as guests at a table rather than as dumb animals, as sheep under a shepherd's care. We are literally honored guests in God's presence. 
says verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 23. Today, in the briefer time than usual that we have on a communion day, I want to make two points from verses 5 and 6, one per verse, and then tell you a bit of an extended story. In Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, you may recall that Excuse me. After the young man came crawling back to his father, rather begging for mercy and saying, I'll just take the lowest corner of the barn. Just give me shelter and a place to, to stay. I don't want anything. I don't deserve anything. The father instead showered his lavish love on the son by throwing a great feast for him, killing what was called the fatted calf, the the choicest food that he had to present. I think we all have some idea that in every culture of the world, eating and feasting, banqueting, symbolizes joy and celebration. What do we do on all of our holidays? You think of every single major holiday we have, from the 4th of July picnic with the hamburgers and the corn on the cob to Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, All of these times we get our families together and we feast. We break bread together. You wouldn't hardly think of saying, family, y'all come over. We're not going to eat anything this year. Thought we'd do it differently. Just come on over. And they'd say, what? No food? It wouldn't be a celebration at all. We eat together, not for purely symbolic reasons, of course. We eat because we have the physical need of nourishment, but also to enjoy one another, sitting down and forging new relationships and strengthening the unity of old relationships at some kind of a banquet table. Well, David, in verse 5 of Psalm 23, points out that this feast that God prepares is something unique. It's a table set in the presence of his enemies. What exactly was he saying there? We would think perhaps this. As soldiers eat in time of battle or time of combat when their duty is high, their preparedness and alertness is high, you know, of course, that they take readily prepared food out of a pack and and eat it in haste. They used to be called in the old days K-rations. I think they're still called MREs. Uh, Cynical soldiers call that meals rejected by Ethiopians. But uh, anyway, they take this dried food, freeze-dried food, and and eat it. You have to eat it quickly, on the run, grab something from your canteen, because you've got to have your rifle near and be alert to the enemy. Well, how changed it is once the battle is decided. If the battle is won, then you have the leisure to sit down and eat and, and build a fire or the sterno stove or whatever and warm up your food and perhaps go to the mess hall and the cooks come and prepare hot food and you can really enjoy it. You can sit down and luxuriate with your friends. We think that's what verse 5 is saying. God has won the great battle against our enemy, death and Satan. And we can celebrate a victory with him. We don't come as those who have to just grab something and run, but we sit down with our God. We relax with Him, enjoy His presence, and know that we eat in safety of a victory that is decided in the end. Now, there's another statement 
in verse 5, when it says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Here we would believe that it's speaking about the way a host would welcome a guest into his house. We don't do this in our country today. Traveling from one place to another is not a dusty or arduous task for most of us. We get in our air-conditioned cars and go and arrive at least relatively fresh. But of course, (coughs) in the ancient time, someone arrived all dusty and sunburned and very weary, probably from walking many miles. And one of the things a host would do, instead of perhaps preparing a whole bath for the person, which would have been welcome, and, and maybe in some instances that would have even been provided. But a frequent thing would be to put some drops of scented oil on their hands as they came into the house. And the guest would take this and, and wash his face or bathe his face with the scented oil. And not only would the, the scent of it, but the oil itself would break the dust and create a sense of real refreshment. It even cleansed the hands as they were rubbed together. It was a common hospitality treatment. You remember how a woman once went overboard with that when that was probably the task she was supposed to do was to put a little oil on the hands of the dinner guests and instead she took her whole bottle and poured it on the head of Jesus or another woman once poured it on his feet as just a lavish greeting. Well, that's what the psalmist is saying. Lord, You give me the greeting that refreshes, that renews me from my weariness. And then, too, my cup overflows. A brimming cup of wine in those ancient centuries was a welcome thing for somebody coming dry from the road. You would want a drink that would refresh you. Good wine was set before you. You enjoyed it. Psalm 104 says, wine gladdens the heart, and oil makes the face to shine. That's exactly what the psalmist is celebrating here. The Lord gives me the hospitality treatment that a host would give. He refreshes me. He quenches my thirst. Now, this verse 5 at least is saying to us as a first point that God indeed gives us a table as a pledge of his abundant grace. He means to refresh us. He means to remind us in the midst of our weariness that he wants us to sit down and enjoy the fact that he indeed is in charge. He indeed is the victor, the protector. We have nothing to fear. We can relax in the midst of his hospitality. He reminds us that we are indeed like the prodigal son coming back as a son or a daughter and and receiving a welcome way beyond what we expect, having the lavish, ornate robe thrown around us, which, which for the Christian, of course, is the robe of Christ. He welcomes us. He shows us his finest. He doesn't just greet us. You know, some of you who are older can remember the days in the Depression when hobos would be traversing the country and they might knock at the kitchen door and Housewives would hand a sandwich out or maybe a cup of coffee, and they usually didn't want to bring this unwashed man that they couldn't know very well or trust into the home, but would at least give him something at the back door. Well, that isn't the hospitality of God, David says. God's hospitality throws the door open, welcomes his people in, welcomes his children by faith, sits them down, covers them with scented oil, 
gives them the cup of wine and welcomes them. Should we not be humbled by this? And should we not be ever grateful to our God? The Lord's table is a time to show that gratitude and that humility before our wonderful host. Well, there's a second assertion of our text in verse 6, and it tells us that God's own presence is now our home, our dwelling, now and forever. Listen to it. It says, goodness and mercy or love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's speaking about a dwelling, a home. And in this house or dwelling is not a building. It's not a marble palace. It seems clearly to be simply the presence of God. Where God is, is my home. It calls to mind what Jesus said in John 14 as he was leaving the earth, and he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may also be, and I will come back to take you to be where I am. The emphasis was not on the dimensions of the mansion or the architectural splendor of it. The dimensions were, I'm there, and you'll be at home there because it's where I am. And that indeed is the emphasis of the Bible consistently, Old Testament and New, that we will be most at home in a complete fellowship with our God in eternity. Revelation 21 has that ultimate expression, Revelation 21.3, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Every redeemed believer in Christ, therefore, knows that we are already home because of Christ. Yes, we're in a life where we don't see God face to face, and there are troubles, and sin is still here, and there are, kind of, there are griefs and diseases, and we will have to go through physical death, and yet we already are seated at God's table. Remember Colossians, as we studied it, saying a number of weeks ago that we are already seated with Christ at the right hand of God. We're secure as believers in this Son of God, our precious Lord Jesus, that we are God's invited guests. Now, I want to use more time than I would normally ever use to tell you a story today. I have told it one other time, but it was many years ago. It's one that is a rich story, and I can't convey the fullness of it unless you were to see the film on which it was based. And I might urge some of you who who like a truly quality film to look for this rather obscure one and see if you can overrun the movie houses with requests for it because they've got a copy tucked away somewhere on a back shelf. Normally, I'd be turned off by a foreign-made film that all the dialogue in it is either in French or Danish. I can't understand a word, but it has subtitles. So I know what they're saying. And a movie made almost 20 years ago rewards you for putting up with the subtitles. In fact, you soon forget about them. The film is called Babette's Feast. It's an interesting story. It takes place in a remote fishing village in the country of Denmark quite a few years ago, more than 150 years ago, the early 19th century. It seems that a 
Lutheran pastor served the village congregation way out. It's a remote place. And this kindly old pastor was much revered, and he had drawn around him a a good congregation, a good flock who truly worshiped God and served one another. But then he died. And upon his death, the place was so remote that another pastor could not be found. And the two daughters of the old pastor, their names were Martina and Philippa, lived on in the pastor's home, neither one of them married, and they became more or less the de facto leaders of the congregation that dwindled somewhat with no pastor to care for them, but they continued to gather to sing hymns, but they did it without all the same spirit and life and joy that they did when they had their pastor. Well, then the, the film fast-forwards about 30 years. Now these two sisters are elderly, getting older, and the saints that worship with them are even more elderly. In fact, there's just a handful. And you're shown these older folks tottering to the home of the two daughters, Martina and Philippa, to come and sit and sing and pray on a Sunday. I guess they can't even keep the church building going anymore. But the spirit of the congregation has really declined. In fact, they bicker, they argue with each other. The sisters have to kind of moderate arguments and tell the folks to be kind, which they're not. And they do reminisce about their fine pastor 30 years ago, but the spirit is all gone. They're just gathering out of habit and going through the motions of what you might call worship. Well, then one night, a knock comes at these two sisters' door, and they're surprised to find a young French woman at the door. Her name is Babette. And Babette has come to Denmark, fleeing there on the advice of a friend who knew these sisters and their reputation, who had told Babette that perhaps she could find shelter or asylum there because of civil unrest going on in Paris Babette more or less had a price on her head and had to leave or she could have been in prison. And she tells the sisters, well, I could cook for you, I could work. If I could just have a little corner, a little room, a bed to sleep in, I would earn my keep. Well, the sisters are poor, they can't pay, but they say, well, if you can cook, where our abilities are declining, maybe you can help out and, and earn your keep. So there's a little attic room you can have But they take her aside and they make sure that they instruct her. This is important. They instruct her in how to cook. And they show her that they eat fish only when it's boiled and very plain. They eat only a coarse kind of bread that's inexpensive to buy. Their food is extremely plain, nothing fancy. They show Babette how to fix it the way they want it. And Babette says, fine, I'll do that. She's grateful for a place of refuge. Well, 14 more years go by, and next comes the scene where Babette receives a telegram one day, a letter announcing that she, remarkably, has won 10,000 francs in the French lottery, a fabulous sum of money. And she knows and realizes right away that she would be able to use that money to go back to France, where her heart has always been, and Now she could get a new start, and I guess the civil unrest is over. It's a grand sum. She could start a new life. And the sisters realize this, and they look at each other and think, oh, no, Babette is going to leave us. What will we do? We're getting old. She's been a tremendous help to us for 14 years. Babette asks their permission to cook a dinner for them. 
And she says, I would like to show you my gratitude, please. Not only you two, but would you invite the people of the little congregation? Invite them all, and I'm going to cook for you. Well, the sisters are sure. This is a farewell feast. They'll never see Babette again. But soon they're amazed to see the preparations for the feast. Rare ingredients start arriving. Whole boxes and crates and cartons of things. Foods that they've never seen before. A live tortoise comes, a great big tortoise to make turtle soup. And boxes of rare expensive wines come. Exotic fruits they've never even seen before like pineapples and grapes arrive. And cheeses. And and these people are astonished. And in fact, they're worried. They're people who just eat plain food. Maybe they'll be poisoned if they eat food like this. But they think, no, we must be gracious, we must be grateful, and take Babette's cooking as it comes, even if it's bad. Well, the night of the feast comes, and the table is set in the house with linen and gleaming candlesticks, and the older folks all come in, file in, sit down. They're very nervous. They don't know what is going to happen. This is a whole new situation for them. And one course by course, they're served by Babette, hors d'oeuvres, turtle soup, wonderful fresh salad, cheeses, fish, spiced like they've never had it in their plain diet, all kinds of meats, quail, fruit, desserts that are rich, chocolates, and all kinds of things. And between each course, the finest of wines are poured, and they drink these things, and you see them doing it very suspiciously and hesitantly, But then they begin to change, and their faces show delight. Obviously, what they're eating is delicious beyond their wildest dreams. And more important than that is another reaction that begins to happen as you watch these little people, this congregation of aging saints who were really pretty cranky folks. As they begin to eat, they start speaking kind words to each other, and one person speaks over to the one across the table and says, my brother, I forgive you for that fault I've been holding against you all these years. And similar things are spoken until real joy just suffuses the whole table and their fellowship and their eyes start gleaming. It's not drunkenness completely, but they're gleaming with a recognition of how sweet life is and how wonderful its gifts can be, not the least the reward of one another and their friendship. Well, then Babette tells them the truth. She's not leaving. She didn't intend to leave at all. And as a matter of fact, she had spent all, every penny of her 10,000 francs on the preparation of this dinner of gratitude for her friends in this little village. And then she confesses something that is also true. Before she came there 14 years ago and was taught to to prepare boiled fish and plain, ordinary, tasteless food, Babette was perhaps the most famous chef in Paris. She, in fact, was sought after to cook for royalty. And yet she had buried herself as an exile with these two kind women, set aside everything she knew to prepare food their way, and now has spent every cent that she had in preparing a thank you meal for her Danish friends. The film Babette's Feast is not a heavy-handedly Christian movie. 
And yet, you sense in it a moving and beautiful picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. God came to us in the person of Christ. He gave up his place of unlimited glory and privilege and power to live among us in obscurity as our servant. People who hired Jesus as a carpenter to build them furniture never guessed that their few coins for a chair or a table were going to the one who was actually the architect of heaven and earth. He came. He offered himself. He lived among us. He became our shepherd and our servant. And you know, of course, he obeyed his father going to a cross of shame to die a death he did not deserve to pay a penalty for us who did not deserve that. But before Jesus departed the earth, he provided a supper. Compared to Babette's feast, it was a very simple supper. Wine and bread, the food of common people, were passed around among his dear friends who sat there on that last night before the cross as a fearful group. They had heard him say, this will be the last time. Something's going to happen. There was a sense of grim expectancy among them. What is going to happen? Is he leaving us? The feast that Jesus offered was not turtle soup. It was not quail. It was not champagne. It was food of the real forgiveness of sins, of settled peace with God, and sure hope of eternal life. You who I invite today to dine at the Feast of Christ, receive not simple gifts of juice and bread. You receive these same things, forgiveness, peace, eternal life. The great host attends this feast. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I am there. I'm the host of this feast. Sit down with me. Eat and drink. Trust in me. Rest yourself in me. Come away from the presence of all the enemies that you fear and are so vigilant about. And rest, relax, believe that I have those enemies in hand and I have won the victory over them that ultimately will deliver you. Here you can find not only forgiveness for yourself, but you must learn to extend forgiveness to your brothers and your sisters. And here you may find gratitude for your souls. Why would you settle for a fast food happy meal of instant gratifications of the kind this society offers you on the right hand and the left when you can have eternal food. Trust Christ as your generous host today. Sit down and eat with him as a prodigal child coming back who lets the father spread the robe around his shoulders. This welcome home banquet that's made ready for every one of you who will simply come and say, Father, I don't deserve a place at your table. I don't even deserve a corner in your barn. But I ask you to give me the least place. And what he gives you in Christ is an honored place at his very table, 
a place to dwell now and through eternity. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we come mindful of what you have done in Jesus, of what you want us to enjoy. We are so negligent of it. Let us not pass it by this time, but teach us to thank you. Teach us to receive that forgiveness offered, but then to go and forgive, to look at our brothers and sisters and revel in their fellowship in a new way, brighten our eyes, lighten our faces as we come and find our place at your table through Jesus Christ. Amen.